Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And I guess we should say it now because I might forget later, but after our next episode, we are taking a six-week hiatus, summer hiatus, mostly because me and Liz are going on a trip we've been planning for two years that's going to take a month. And as much as I'd like to say, oh, yeah, I'll be podcasting from the trip, I'm not going to be doing that. I do have to do some work, but it's work to make money. So and other podcasts take hiatus, hiatai, what's the... I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. So anyway, before we get started on the updates and stuff, we wanted to talk about the fact that Maine is on a record. Woo, a record. We already have... I think it's 19 homicides this year, which is usually, usually what we get for a year. And because for whatever reason, the Bangor Daily News is not letting me open my account, even though my payments are up to date, I couldn't read their story on it, but I believe more than half of them are domestic homicides. But the most recent one, the 19th one is a very sad, not that they're not all sad, that happened right near my town in Mount Vernon. And Becky, do you want to? Yes, a 14-year-old girl was killed. Yes, Brooke McLaughlin. And we don't know much that much about it, except her 15-year-old, I guess you would call him boyfriend. Well, that's by his. Has been arrested. Well, the police haven't released his name. It's Aiden Grant. And just to clarify for people who don't understand, just because the police don't release the name of a juvenile doesn't mean the press can't. There's no like law against it or anything. And there is an affidavit related to his arrest. It doesn't seem like the news outlets are putting those affidavits online the way they used to. No, but also a lot of stuff was sealed. Yeah, Yeah. sealed because he is a juvenile. He did say on his Facebook status that they're in a relationship, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are. And apparently he went to her house in Mount Vernon, Maine and killed her. They haven't said how. No. And he took a, did he take a car? Because the car was missing. He took a car. He took a car from their property and it was found in Wayne, Maine, which is, which is is right near Mount Vernon. Yeah. If you watch Maine Cabin Masters, you probably recognize Chase lives in Wayne. About this homicide of 14 year old Brooke McLaughlin. She looks like she was a real pistol and it's very sad. And I know that when kids are involved, people want to not release a lot of details or talk about details but i think in homicides like this it's almost essential to talk about what would have led up to this and that type of thing because domestic violence and relationship abuse or just gender abuse is very prevalent in school the short article i read today there was a quote from one of her teachers that called her a quote resilient student and the use of that word made me wonder what they meant by that like did she have a hard life but i want to know more yeah i agree with you and it's funny too before they arrested the kid and i hate stories like this when i was an editor i used to say don't get all these quotes all these quotes from people oh now i have to lock my doors oh Oh, you never think something would happen in a town like this and it's like this is where these things happen especially in maine because all the towns are all the towns i know i was gonna say all the towns are like that 
it's very rare to have a stranger murder if it's not domestic it's people that are like two brothers who are fighting over something right or it's, two friends that are drunk it's and drug fighting. fueled alcohol fueled drug deal gone bad or domestic there aren't any mysterious any mysterious very, very ones rare. are just things that haven't been solved because of for whatever reason and still probably either relate to all those or just some some asshole who killed a woman and speaking of assholes this is a tough segue there's an update to a case we haven't done but is one of Maine's most notorious cases yes Dennis DeShane and the reason I wanted to talk about him is because we have had several people contact us asking us people from Maine mostly Mm. asking if we're going to do this case and those of you who are listening that have talked to me I usually say there's just too much baggage with this case I'll just give a really short version of it Sarah Cherry was a 12 year old girl it was what 1989 his trial was in 1989 she was babysitting it was her first time alone babysitting she was in a rural area in Bodenham and somebody killed her. She was found in the woods. She had been raped. There was evidence to show that this guy, Dennis DeShane, had been on the property. And they found him. He stumbled out of the woods. He had been doing drugs all day, apparently. And he was arrested and tried for her murder. He's been in jail since then. And we've talked about this, but not on the show. When this first happened, I, along with uh, most people, assumed he was guilty. And part of it was the way it was reported. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I, my mind changed, but over the years, one day I was just thinking about it because there's it always comes up in the news because he's appealed and all this stuff. And I was thinking, you know what? It doesn't really make sense that he would actually do no. it. The evidence, he, too, is just like obvious shit that if you're a mystery writer, you'd throw in. Like there was a receipt from his company with his name on it in the driveway of the house. Now, he was in the woods all day doing drugs i can't remember if it was meth or something and his truck was parked somewhere probably unlocked like most of us well many of us in maine who don't bother to lock especially when you're doing drugs my theory that i came up with on my own after thinking about it was that whoever did this to her she was found in the woods they had taken her and the poor thing it wasn't a good murder if there is one, but she had been raped and everything. They found her body in the woods. This person saw his truck, took shit out of it and put like a rope in it. I mean, it's a truck. There's shit in the bed of the truck. There's stuff in her driveway. That's the only evidence they had. Her fingernails had been cut. What do they call it? The chain of evidence or whatever has been messed up because his lawyer had them for some reason. Her fingernails were cut. As part of the investigation. Oh, I'm sorry. The, as, yes, I'm sorry. Killer. As part of the investigation when, when they did the medical exam. And there was some kind of, and I can't remember off the top of my head what it was now, but many, many years ago, there was some kind of DNA testing in the early days. In 1989, when he was tried, although, of course, the newspaper implied it wrong in the most recent story, DNA testing wasn't even on Maine's radar. No. It was no. in its very nascent form. And in no some one even places, about it. And nobody even talked right. about it. The first no. time I ever heard it, I was in New Hampshire, but 1993 was the first time I ever heard yeah. about it. So there was no DNA testing done when he was found guilty. Sometime in the 10 years after that, some kind of DNA test was done. I'm not sure what it was done on or what kind of testing it was done. But now the court has allowed them to do more extensive. That came out inconclusive, whatever it was they did. But he has tried many times to address this and get DNA testing done. And he's been denied every time. And this time he finally has been allowed that a judge finally allowed them to do DNA testing. And my feeling is if there is a reasonable 
expectation that a DNA test might clear something up, there shouldn't be a judge denying it. Right. If there is evidence that can be tested, yeah. then why is a judge denying right. it? Right. It's either going to prove that the prosecution was right, or it's going to, there are many people that think he is innocent. There are a lot of people that just assume he's guilty. But I find that the ones that assume he's guilty are going back 30 years to, oh yeah, that guy that first of all, if you're doing drugs all day, do you have the wherewithal to rape? And and well the things I always thought about it when I thought more about it was first of all, whoever killed her knew where to find her. Yeah, they knew she was alone. Because it's not like a suburban area or a city street where all, there's all the houses in a row and you can walk by and see a little girl. These are houses that are in the woods with long driveways where you have to know somebody's at the house. You're not just going to go to random houses looking for a 12-year-old to rape and kill or anybody mm-hmm. to rape and kill. The other thought I've had since he's been pushing so much for DNA testing is if you know you're guilty and maybe, you know, you can argue maybe he was so drugged up he did it and doesn't think he did. But if you know you're guilty, you don't fucking push for DNA testing. You may profess your innocence, but you're not going to ask for the one thing that will prove you are guilty. Also, I saw a documentary. I cannot remember what it's called. I saw it on TV. I can't remember (laughs) when. I feel like I was still living in New Hampshire at the time, so it would have been more than 11 years ago. That made a great case for a relative of hers. Yes. A male relative who had a history of being creepy with girls and all sorts of other things, who knew where she was that day, who knew where to find her, who was not investigated from what I know. So, And he moved out of state. Right. The more I thought about it, and before I even knew anything about this relative that I've I've heard about and read about too. When I first started thinking, gee, maybe he, you know, I don't know why I always thought he was guilty. The chances of him knowing he didn't know her at all. No. Of him just stumbling upon this. And I was thinking, no, it's more likely that some creepy, disgusting family member who pretty much, I'd say 99% of us women can name one in our family. Mm -hmm. Not immediate family, sorry. Uh, But, but, you know. Sure, let's say that. You know, the, the, the funny uncle, uncle you stay away from, or right. the stepfather, or right. step or the cousin, or, or step grandfather. The chances of some creepy relative knowing, oh, I know Sarah's there alone, and maybe whatever happened got out of hand. And I don't want to go into the details because some right. of them are gross. But I think part of what they found on her, like she had been assaulted with a stick. I think I some think of that was trying staging. to cover up. Yeah. yeah, staging and covering up. I would like to know, maybe this information is out there if I do more digging. What forensic evidence did they test? Did they test his clothes? Right. Did they test her for pubic hairs and stuff like that that they right. used to test people for? Are they going to do touch evidence? It's some newer form of DNA testing we, that they be- attempted that on Channel 6 the other night. They attempted laboriously to explain, <laughs> and it made so little sense. And I haven't had time. I will say, and if you disagree with this, then maybe not. But if he's exonerated, why don't we do an episode yeah. on it? No, I'd love to do an episode on him. I just don't want to. Yeah. Right now, if it's just too, like you said, too much baggage. And if, and if anyone's interested, if you go. Just Google it. You'll, you'll, you'll get a lot so of crap, <laughs> but you'll. There's and, a lot of information about him. And as we talked about with Sophie Sergey, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like a lot of predators and rapists and people who abuse women and children think ahead, think steps ahead. 
And it's not like they necessarily plan to kill somebody, but the problem is once you rape the person, if it looks like that person is not going to keep their mouth shut or fights back or something else happens, then you have to kill her. You might kill them by just grabbing her by the throat or something without meaning to kill her. Right. So that's going on now. The DNA testing has been approved. I'll be interested to see what happens. And the other thing I'll say is, no offense to his lawyer, and I'm not going to name his name. Who is it? Just say it and I'll... I'll... Tom Conley, the one that always wore that duck hunting hat. I guess I can say who it is. He ran for governor. I voted for him because he's a Democrat. He didn't do the case any favors because he's... He's kind of crazy. And I'm not saying he's definitely. Innocent, no, I'm not either. But, I'm but just it's saying... another it's another situation where there was a rush to judgment. All the possibilities and the more obvious possibilities, especially in these cases where it comes to crimes against women, aren't looked at. And on that note, I have a short update. OK. And then you have an update, right? Yeah. And I am. i sorry. So my update is to our our episode 126.2, Nicole Mokim's murder. Ray Lester, her boyfriend, was arrested in Cancun on Monday, July 18th by the U.S. Marshal Service. Mm. We had recorded this episode a day or two after that. Before we recorded and before I dropped the episode after I edited it, I checked the internet to see if he had been arrested and there was nothing on it except for one thing you sent me, a post somebody had put on Facebook no, saying, it was on next. It was on next, next door. door, right? Saying I heard he was arrested in Cancun, but I couldn't find anything. So I'm like, it could be true, it could not be true. But I'm not gonna do. I just want to get this episode out. And it turns out he had been, but nobody had reported it yet. Maybe because it was the U.S. Marshal Service and not local police, although Maine State Police were involved. Maybe because journalism in Maine is so lackluster that nobody was even looking or paying attention. There used to be a time when people would just constantly check on this stuff. Not anymore. In any case, later that week, they started reporting on it. Lest you think all this is is a rant against local journalism. (laughs) Lester, 35, was arrested a month to the day after he allegedly killed Nicole Mokimi, his girlfriend of several years, at the Skudik Research Institute in Acadia National Park by hitting her with his car, a giant honking SUV. He's expected to be returned to Maine sometime this week and charged with murder. And right now it's July 26th, so sometime this week. I'll do more of an update on our next episode, but for now, the federal affidavit says he was seen by others at the scene drinking vodka and appeared to be drunk. He told one person Mokimi, quote, doesn't like me anymore, unquote. And Mm. others say he made shooting gestures with his fingers at their group. And I don't know if this was a group of her friends or whatever. She was running the Black Excellence Conference, which was a celebration of Juneteenth up there. And you can listen to the episode. It's a short episode for us, 126.2, if you want to hear more details. But later that night, after he was seen drunk and everything, he was driving his SUV fast and dangerously around the campus of the Skudik Institute, playing loud music. And police say he knowingly drove his SUV off the road and onto a walking path where Nicole Mokimi was killing her. He apparently drove right at her. Um, Authorities say... Plate readers captured his license plate in several states, including Georgia and Texas, days after the killing. So memo, if you're going to do that, either steal some plates for your car or somehow get another car, steal another car or something. But Use and, that tape to 
right to make him look different investigators say that they learned he left the u.s right after that and found he was in cancun and the u.s marshal service went down and got him so he was finally arrested after that weird what an asshole lack of information and there's still a lack of information there's been a couple stories but still not much it's it's weird how this story has not gained a lot of traction and after you do the update you have i have another story that weirdly should have got more yeah. publicity but didn't but you have an update right yes it's kind of three in one update Ooh. but they're all on the same subject because they all happened in this last week this update is going way back to episode 12 whoa the title uber crime taking a ride with danger i liked that one my sources are the BBC, The Guardian, and The Washington Post, and probably some other stuff. I read a bunch of stuff. First of all, on July 18th, Uber settled a lawsuit with the federal government in which Uber was charged with violating the Americans with Disability Act. Apparently, Uber charges riders if they take more than two minutes to get into the car once the car stops. Wow. Now, I haven't driven for Uber in over five years, so I was unaware of this charge which uh supposedly started in 2016 while i was driving but i don't remember it but maybe i wouldn't even be aware of it i don't know i don't know how they would they used to send out these notices when i drove for them and stuff sometimes i'd read them and sometimes i wouldn't in any case this fee was charged even to handicapped people with wheelchairs or crutches Mm. or other reason why getting in the car would take time there's something that wasn't their fault like they weren't drunkenly leaning against the car talking to somebody according to the settlement uber will not charge these fees to anyone who has quote a certified disability whatever that means. And they will refund any disabled person who has charged a fee. In a statement, Uber said they always refunded the fee when made aware of it by a Hmm. disabled person. Now, excuse my cynicism, but how easy do you think it was to report this fee? And how many people are going to take the time when the average fee was about 60 cents? But it's not the money, it's the principle of it. Right. They're charging handicapped people for being slow. It's penalizing people with disabilities. But The other thing is, I don't think it's very easy to contact them. No. If you have an issue. It's not easy to contact anyone if you have an issue. The fee itself just seems asshole-ish, even for able people, but for disabled people. So now they say, oh, well, someone just needs to tell us in advance if they're disabled. But how do you prove you're disabled? And then they'll refund the fee immediately. You drive up, you see that the person you're picking up has crutches or is in a wheelchair or some other disability, then you know they're disabled. And if you have a heart at all, you may even get out. But and I don't open think the door. it's the drivers. It's, oh. I think it's a, some kind of setting they have. When you're picking the person up, they know when you've stopped, then the clock is running until they get in the car, I, I guess. I don't really know how it works. And so that was the first. Okay. okay. Next in Uber News, on Monday, July 11th, Mark McGann, a former executive and lobbyist for Uber, came forward and outed himself as the whistleblower who had leaked over 124,000 documents that revealed Uber's sketchy ways 
how they skirted laws to establish themselves in cities across the world, and how they actively hid information when law enforcement came calling. Mm. Like they had this switch, they called it the kill switch, that could somehow deactivate, hide all this computer stuff when law enforcement was asking them because they broke laws a lot. Mark McGann was a lobbyist. He was described as an Irishman who speaks fluent French. Well, um, like that's some kind of rare thing. It was it germane to the story at all? Or was it just... Well, they were just describing him. He was the lobbyist who dealt with the European leg of Uber. So he was their face. As he said in an interview with The Guardian, and I'm not going to do an Irish accent speaking French, he said, I was the one talking to governments. I was the one pushing this with the media. I was the one telling people that they should change the rules because drivers were going to benefit and people were going to get so much economic opportunity. When that turned out not to be the case, we had actually sold people a lie. How can you have a clear conscience if you don't stand up and own your contribution to how people are being treated today? Eventually, Mark became afraid for his and his family's safety when he was threatened in different European countries by protesting taxi drivers. In Germany, France, Italy, the UK, he was the face of Uber. He was doxxed online and followed by taxi drivers. Mark told The Guardian that he got death threats and photos of his children and house were posted online. He said they needed someone to shout at. They needed somebody to intimidate, somebody to threaten. I became that person. He resigned in 2015, explaining this is not a culture where you could actually stand up and question the company's decisions or the company's strategy. I realized that I was having no impact, that I was wasting my time with the company. And that feeling at that point in my career, combined with the fact that I was worried not just for my own safety, but the safety of my family and friends. Uber said that Mark McGann isn't in a position now to talk about Uber since he's been gone so long and they've changed their culture. Oh, I'm sure they have. Or have they? So the third part. So there are quite a few lawsuits going on these days involving Uber, and I'm not going to talk about all of them. We don't have time. It would be a whole nother episode that I just couldn't deal with. Mm. A lot of riders have sued Uber over the years after being assaulted on rides. Well, a few weeks ago, Wednesday, July 13th, a huge class action suit was filed in San Francisco County Superior Court. The complaint was filed by the law firm Slater Slater Schulman. <laughs> Five Dewey, Dewey Cheatman. Cheatman how? <laughs> So 550 women are represented across multiple states, United States. According to the lawsuit, the company was aware of sexual assaults on riders and by drivers, but did nothing about it. The lawsuit says Uber, quote, prioritized growth over customer safety, end quote. One example of how they didn't give a shit about the safety of their drivers, according to the complaint, is that they didn't do regular background checks. They didn't fingerprint or do criminal history checks to the FBI database and still don't. Didn't we, when we became Uber drivers, we had to send a photocopy of our license. We had to agree to a background check. Yeah, but that doesn't mean but they, they didn't do, do them, right? Okay. Well, they didn't do FBI ones. They could have no. done local law enforcement right. one or yeah. something, state right. ones. Probably with the DMV or whatever, you but know, they to probably, give speeding tickets. They don't want to spend the money, right? And I know we didn't have to do fingerprint or anything. No. I had to when I worked. I used to work at an airport, the airport in Bangor, Maine, and I had to do a fingerprint um, ah. and background check. The other thing is they refused to put video cameras in cars to protect people. Although I think a lot drivers take it upon themselves they don't seem to have a zero tolerance policy for assaults either 
they have a three strikes policy. So it takes three customers complaining of assault before someone's contract is severed. Wow. Now, I know Uber tries to say the drivers are not their employees, and technically that's true, but there is no reason for them to keep up a relationship with a contract worker who has assaulted one of their customers or even has been accused of it. At most jobs where I've worked, a complaint like that will get you fired. The customer is given the benefit of the doubt. It might not seem fair if you're innocent or you feel you're in the right, but companies usually care about how they are perceived by the public more than what an employee has to say. Not saying it's right, but that's how it is. As an independent contract, I have signed contracts, just signed one recently, where there are very strict rules about your behavior when you are doing work for the company. So even if you're an independent contractor, you can violate your contract. I would certainly think committing a crime by assaulting someone is a contract violation. No shit. Doesn't take much of a stretch of the imagination. So as I was saying, companies, they usually seem to care what their public perception is. Uber doesn't really give a shit, apparently, what people think. Going back to Mark McGann, the former lobbyist, he said that Uber's philosophy was that they were basically a tech company. They didn't care about what the laws were. They were just going to try whatever they had to do to expand. They weren't going to ask permission. They were just going to see how far they could go. And if they had to fix something later, that's what they would do. One article I read about the leaks, I didn't want to get too much into the weeds with all the leaks, but a lot of the stuff he leaked supported the stuff that was said in this lawsuit, the toxic environment of the workplace and stuff and how they didn't give a shit about writers. And see, Um, I think, and I think too that, oh, we're just a tech company is bullshit but what they really don't want to do is it is hard to enforce when you have people mostly guys all over the world assaulting people it's really hard to keep up with that and it's going to get really expensive and it's going to be hard to get drivers because you can get a lot more drivers if you're okay with them assaulting and that's people. what that and that was what mark mcgann was saying too was they were so desperate to get drivers that they didn't care They just wanted people to sign up. And I have to say that if you're going to, well, we're just a tech company. A lot of tech companies, their vibe is toxic masculinity, and they didn't really give a crap about writers being attacked, as long as there were more writers to take their places. In a statement released to news outlets, Uber said, sexual assault is a horrific crime, and we take every single report seriously. There is nothing more important than safety, which is why Uber has built new safety features, established survivor-centric policies, and been more transparent about serious incidents. While we can't comment on pending litigation, we will continue to keep safety at the heart of our work, end quote. And I say, okay, we're watching. It sounds like some bullshit a lawyer wrote that doesn't have any basis in fact. I mean, it can happen in a regular cab too, that someone can take advantage of you. Well, I think part of it is, except for people who have grown up in big metropolitan areas, for instance, where we grew up, we never took cabs. I think more people are inclined to take Uber. There are more people taking Ubers than taking cabs because it's ubiquitous. It's easy to do. It's, you know, unless you live in Manhattan or somewhere or in conversely, if you live like in Augusta, Maine and are really poor, you take cabs because there's no public transportation and you can't afford a car. But I think more just exponentially, there's more Uber riders in the world than it's easier because in young people particularly young people on your phone yeah right right i don't even think about it right 
I don't remember the days. It was ABC Taxi, but we used to always take. Mm. I don't know why. And they had an easy phone number to remember. I can't remember what it is now. They give you their card with their ask for Dave or whatever. So we yeah. would call and you'd have to find a phone booth because we didn't have cell phones and call cab yeah. and then wait for them and hope no one wait else to show up. I didn't want to get into the stories, but like one of them was a drunk woman getting into the wrong Uber. People used to get into mine all the time. And yeah. I'd be like, are you Jim? And they'd be like, no, can you take me <laughs> I to can blah, blah, blah? Be, baby. <laughs> and it's like, no, I can't take. I would say almost weekly. I read in the paper somewhere in the country, a uh, young woman getting into the wrong Uber or a guy posing as an Uber posing. driver who's not one. So anyway, that's my update. The thing about class action suit, especially with one that's a, that big, people aren't going to get much money. No. It's the like we were saying, will. right? It's like we were saying a couple episodes ago when I got that check for $2.19 or whatever. I've gotten checks for a few class action but suits those, and they've all been it. less than $8. And the lawyers get a third of the settlement. So the yeah. lawyers. Well, we fun. went into the wrong business, didn't we? I don't want to be a lawyer. No, me neither. I just want to say I'm one. Poses well, one without being one and not doing you any just of the work. Esquire after your name. Uh, this guy I know legally changed his name to Sir Sir John Hargrave. <laughs> so he's Sir. To move to England. We don't have that over here. You could name change your name to Maureen Milliken Esquire. Maybe I will. <laughs> well, I wrote an article on this July 21st for my friend Carol Robido's New Hampshire digital news outlet, Manchester Inklink. And I decided it was worth expanding on for the podcast this week. My sources are, weirdly, since this is a main story, the Daily Mail in the UK. And wow. it's not like an American version. It has British punctuation and all sorts of stuff. And, and they got actually got a lot more information than the local papers. But the Portland Press-Herald has caught up. The Boston Globe, People Magazine. Mm. Also... There's an interview with Rod Sidebotham, and you'll find out shortly who he is, on the main mm. podcast, Locating the Lost, with Travis Hartford and Jeff Atwood. I'll post a link to the Facebook Live version. And I just want to say for anyone that listens to more than one main podcast, we don't all hang out together. So. No, we don't. I did. I wasn't even aware of these guys. And Sorry, guys. The Samford, Maine Police Department has also posted updates on its Facebook page, and there's a Facebook private group called Missing Lydia and Jeff Hansen and Jill Sidebotham that I've gotten info from. I just want to remind people, especially if we have any new listeners, that we are not an investigative podcast. We don't solve crimes. What our goal is, is to take a story that's in the news or sometimes an old-timey story and give you the facts. We are an accuracy and fact-based podcast that writes our own stories. I'm a longtime former journalist Becky's an artist and a kitchen designer, but she's wicked smart and is is interested in things being accurate and factual as I am. Maybe it's how we were raised. Yes. yes. And people, acquaintances who clearly don't listen to this podcast. In fact, someone just said, sent me a message about something the other day saying, oh, get back to solving crime. That's not what we do. And if you listen to the podcast, you know that we research it and make it into a story right. that we can tell you. And our original premise when we started this was you may see something in the news 
and read a few paragraphs, especially nowadays, there may not be much. And you may be like, wow, I want to know more about that. And what we do is try to do as much research as possible to bring you as in-depth a story as we can do it. And then we've expanded it to things we just think are interesting. We still do the research that you might not find it. Right. Or, and you, it, or you might not have the time to do all right. that. Right. And one reason I'm saying this is, first of all, Travis and Jeff did a nice job and they do a nice job with their podcast. We don't do the same thing they do, particularly with this story. And I'll explain more as we go. I think it's important to have a factual account that lays out what's going on because this is an internet driven story and it feels like the rumors and false information are way outpacing. Oh, yeah what's really going on. So with that, I will start. I'm so intrigued. Nick Hansen had had a tough 38 years brought on by childhood trauma and years of substance abuse. His siblings haven't talked to him in three years, ever since his sister, Kelly Hansen, told him not to come around her kids unless he was sober. He didn't even show up last year when his older brother died. But this past June, things seemed to get even tougher. The 38-year-old, originally from the town of Phillips in Maine's Western Mountains, lost parental rights to two of his children, and his sister is in the process of adopting them. He quit his job, or rather stopped showing up. The Mm. boss, whose couch he was surfing on, told him that he had to get out and find another place to stay, but Hansen had nowhere to go. Also in June, a 12-month protection from abuse order by a former girlfriend, Jill Sidebotham, and his two-year-old daughter, Lydia, expired. Jill and Nick hadn't spoken much in person since April 2021, when he tried to break into the house in Springvale that Sidebotham shares with her parents and Lydia and attacked Sidebotham's boyfriend, Corey Alexander, with a drywall hammer. If you've never seen a drywall hammer, it has a hammerhead on one end and a very scary metal claw on the other end. That attack is what prompted the protection from abuse order. While it was in effect, Hansen was allowed to text or email Jill about Lydia and was also allowed weekly supervised visits with his daughter. He also was ordered to, quote, engage in regular individual behavioral health counseling sessions with a licensed provider to address mental health issues. That's according to a Press Herald story by mm-hmm. Megan Gray. It was the second protection from abuse order Sidebotham had gotten against Hansen. He was also charged with misdemeanor domestic assault with Sidebotham, the victim, in November 2019. At the time, he was prohibited from any contact with Sidebotham, but after he provided proof of participation in a certified batterer's intervention program in June 2020, that was dropped. Less than a year later, he was going after Corey Alexander with that drywall hammer. There were also other indications of abuse. At some point, for instance, he broke her phone on purpose to keep her from talking to other guys when they were going out. In the request for the 2021 protection from abuse order, which was for herself and Lydia, Jill wrote, Nick came into my house with a hammer with the intent to hurt my current boyfriend in front of my daughter. So I'm not really sure what he's actually capable of. I don't feel comfortable with the violence around my daughter or myself. And it's telling that Nick waited until Jill's father, Ron, left for work that day before he made his Uh attack. It is not clear how often he took advantage of the supervised visits he was allowed with his daughter, Lydia. When he did, it wasn't at Jill's home in Springvale. Before June, her parents hadn't seen him in a year and a half, not since that drywall hammer attack. (laughs) Jill got Mm. occasional support checks from Nick. They weren't regular, but they helped out. 
But in early June this year, he showed up at the side Botham's house for a supervised visit with Lydia, the first time he'd showed up at the house for one. And then he showed up again a short time later in early June. Both times he thanked Ron Sidebotham, Jill's father, for letting him visit the house. He was polite and respectful, unusual for him, but Ron still wasn't comfortable with the guy. Then on June 27th, Hansen showed up unexpectedly and asked Jill and Lydia to go camping with him. Ron, Jill's father, was at work. Jill's mother, Cotty, was in the house and tried to talk Jill out of it, but Jill told her, it'll be fine. Ron says that that's Jill's go-to phrase, it'll be fine. Jill Sidebotham, 28, is the mother of two kids, two-year-old Lydia and 10-year-old Brayden, who visits every weekend and lives during the week with his father. Jill, who had worked in construction and at Cumberland Farms, the convenience store, quit to help take care of Cotty a few years ago. Cotty has several health issues, including neurological illness that makes it hard for her to get around. So they welcome uh-huh. Jill's help. Jill was friends with Hanson's sister, Kelly Hanson. One of them, it's not clear which, because this isn't a Press Herald story with poor sentence construction. So hmm. it's not clear who the she is in a long run on sentence, but either Kelly Hanson or Jill Sidebotham worked with the other's mother and sister at a Sacco nursing home. Hmm. In any case, that's how they met each other. Kelly introduced Jill to Nick. This was several years ago. And I just want to say, you know, as traumatized as I still am by the nuns, I'm so grateful that they taught me to diagram sentences. I know. And if they're not teaching that in school anymore, then maybe college journalism courses should, or anyone who plans to write for a living should be required to learn how to diagram sentences so that pronouns and clauses and everything else match subjects and it <laughs> provides clarity in a story. I'm just saying. But back You're to such my, a cranky editor. I am a cranky editor because it's not that fucking hard. If you're going to get paid to write, you need to do it correctly. Lydia... Born September 16th, 2019, was a preemie, about three pounds when she was born. When she came home from the hospital, she weighed about four pounds. Ron, her grandfather, propped her up on the recliner with a football next to her, and the football dwarfed her. He still laughs about that memory today. Still, the blonde, blue-eyed child had no health issues from being born so early and is full of energy and, quote, the happiest baby on earth, Ron said. She adores her big brother, Brayden, who adores her back and spends a lot of time running around the house with him when he's there on weekends. Ron said, he loves his little sister so much and she loves him. Oh my God, they're inseparable. They'll just laugh and laugh and laugh. He never gets upset with her. I always hate to use the following quote, but I will so I can say something about it. Mm. Kelly Hansen, Nick Hansen's sister, said about the relationship, (laughs) with Jill and Nick. They were good when they were good, and it just got toxic for both of them. As you've already heard, and you will hear more about, Nick Hansen was an abusive partner. So it didn't just, quote, get toxic for both of them. There's no indication at all Jill Sidebotham was abusive in any way. Nick was an abusive partner. I know we say this a lot, but shit like this is going to keep happening and people don't tell it like it is. It's not a relationship that's toxic or abusive. It's a member of the relationship. That's right. That's what Laura Richards always says. That's right. Maybe at some point we can get around here to, to talk about it in our dreams. I love Laura. Jill and Hanson dated for about three years, then broke up shortly after Lydia was born. For the past couple of years, Jill has been dating Corey Alexander, 31, who she met in high school, and they were friends for a long time before their recent romance blossomed. 
The two recently got an apartment in Samford. Springvale, where Jill lives with her parents, is actually a village of Samford. Samford's a city in southwestern Maine. And the two were in the process of moving in together. Alexander told the Press-Herald that the pair liked spending time with Jill's children, sitting on the couch with a movie and takeout, and just being together as a family. She's a great mom, he said. She's a great person. She's wicked supportive of others, someone you can really count on if you're in a situation. She's always been there for me. They keep describing, like, he's her fiancé, she's his fiancé, but I'm not going to say that. Because I know people get annoyed with my feeling about that. But unless you've set a wedding date, you're not engaged. There are people who have been together for 12 or 15 years and say they're affianced to each other. It's like you're either married or you're not married. Right. That's what I used to say. Right. So you agree with me. Jill isn't big on camping, but she did have a small, cheap two-person Walmart pup tent. I know. I'm just... We will talk. Later. I know the listeners can't see my facial expression, but my mouth was hanging open. And uh, I know, and your hands were gesticulating. <laughs> Nick apparently didn't have any camping equipment. Mm, wow. He told Jill or Jill and Cotty, it's not clear, when he came to the house on June 7th, that they camp in Nick's yard. Something Rod Sidebotham scoffs at. Ron pointed out to Travis and Jeff of locating the loss that Nick doesn't have a permanent residence, so he doesn't have a yard to camp in. Nick had been sleeping, as I said, on the couch at his boss's house until he texted his boss in June and, according to the Daily Mail, told his boss to piss off. Well, (laughs) Well, maybe that's what he said. It seems odd to me that an American who doesn't seem to be particularly well read or well educated would use that very British term. They had it in quotes, too, but I'm wondering if it was maybe fuck off. Yeah, that would make more sense. Or if they were using it figuratively, even though they had it in quotes. Ron was extremely concerned when he came home from work that day and heard that Jill and his granddaughter had left to go camping with Nick. Good for you, Ron. He said his wife, Connie, because of her health issues, doesn't get around the house well. And it's not clear how much of the interaction with Jill and Hanson that she actually saw. She did try to tell Jill not to go, as I said, and Jill said it would be fine. Cotty's health has plummeted, by the way, and she's devastated, Ron says. Jill hadn't said anything to her family about going on any camping trip before that day or to her boyfriend, Corey Alexander. Hmm. They just spent the weekend at Jill's parents' house where they celebrated Braden's 10th birthday. After Alexander left Sunday afternoon for their new apartment and Jill was still living with her parents, the pair messaged back and forth, but Jill didn't say anything about a camping trip planned the next day with Hanson. June 27th was a Monday. Brayden was due to spend the upcoming 4th of July weekend, arriving on Thursday, June 30th. Jill, Corey, Brayden, and Lydia had big plans to enjoy the holiday weekend. As we all know, Maine's official entry into summer. It's probably the most festive weekend of the year in Maine. Jill told her mother she'd be home by the time Brayden arrived on Thursday, June 30th. The last time Cotty talked to Jill was June 28th on the phone. Jill's phone died after that for calls. Nobody else who tried to call her was able to get through. On June 29th, Jill and Alexander texted, either texting or possibly Facebook messaging. And there's a screenshot of some of it on the missing Lydia, etc. Facebook page. It's not clear who initiated the conversation or who sent the first text. 
from the screenshot, but Corey Alexander is doing most of the talking. He says, well, I just pulled into work, babe. Just wanted to say again that I love you. Jill responds, love you too and have a good day. Corey replies, you too, baby. Just made my morning all the better hearing from you. And then has a happy face emoji. Jill responds with a heart. Corey Hmm. says, I miss you, baby. Jill answers, miss you too, boo. No one says if short answers like that are normal for her in text. The two also discuss the upcoming weekend plans, which I don't see a screenshot of, so I don't know if her answers got longer or more involved or it was just her responding to Corey. She didn't tell Corey she'd gone camping with Hanson, and he Mm. didn't know at the time that she had. He didn't find out until a couple of days later when she wasn't responding to his calls or texts, and he contacted one of her sisters to find out why he hadn't heard from her. Also on June 29th, the Wednesday after they left to quote-unquote go camping, Jill, Hanson, and Lydia showed up at the Coes Canyon Campground in Byron, Maine. Byron is in Maine's western mountains, about 100 miles north as the crow flies from Sanford and in between Rangeley and Phillips, Hanson's hometown. I have a picture of from up there. I've got some video, too. I went there in the winter, Hannah and me. It's pretty They didn't camp at the Coes Canyon campground, however. The campground was full, and one of the people there suggested they try Mount Blue State Park in Farmington, southeast of there. Samford police last week released security camera footage of the three at the camp store. Hanson holding Lydia, with Jill following behind, and then a very blurry image of Jill holding Lydia in the parking lot. Hmm. none of jill or hansen's family members has heard from either one since that day and that day also nick hansen's phone made its last ping and then went dead there was what the facebook page missing lydia and nick hansen and jill sidebotham which i'm just going to call missing lydia to so i don't have to say the whole name of it whenever okay there was what that page calls a confirmed sighting They first said it was on June 29th, but now it may have been on July 1st. It's unclear which day. At Angel Falls in Township D, which is north of Byron, where the camping area was, also off Route 17. The trailhead for Angel Falls is on Route 17 on the way to Rangeley. And by the way, Angel Falls at 90 feet is either Maine's highest waterfall or one of Maine's highest waterfalls. I've never seen it. Have you been there? No, but somebody just, a teenage girl just the other day slipped and fell on the rocks, which are wet, and it's a kind of tough trail, and plunged and was seriously hurt, and they had to get around, blah, blah, but that's a story for another day. Nick apparently told two hikers that the trio was on a summer-long trip, or a summer-long trip, depending on which story you read because of punctuation. The Facebook page first said that was a confirmed sighting, though I'm not sure who confirmed it now on their updated timeline they have what looks like it on july 1st and they have unconfirmed to me a confirmed sighting would not only be some hiker saying oh yeah they told me blah 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 but some other corroborating evidence that that they were indeed there because anybody can say anything and either be mistaken or just want to be part of the story or whatever um like a photo of them or something right speaking of which the last confirmed sighting was saturday july 2nd in a mexico maine walmart and that's in the same area of of the state i've been in it so have i 
And that's times. also on Route 17 in the same area of the state, though across the county line in Oxford County. The three are at the cash register with Jill doing the transaction with the cashier and Hanson hovering next to her. Lydia mm. is in the shopping cart seat. Ron, Jill's father, told Locating the Lost that police told him that the video itself, which hasn't been released, shows Jill beginning to pay with a card, then Nick saying something to her and her paying with cash instead. At least I think that's what Ron said because they were having some internet issues. And also, and this is a, a, a swipe at that podcast because they did a good job, but some things were talked about in a kind of shorthand and then skipped around and me not being familiar with some of the details, even though I'm very familiar with the Walmart sighting, wasn't really sure at some points what exactly they were saying. But anyway, that same day, Saturday, July 2nd, Jill's family reported Jill and Lydia missing to the Samford Police Department. Unlike a lot of stories you hear like this, the Samford PD jumped right on it. They didn't say she's an adult, she'll come home. They didn't say she has a right to be missing or all those other things you hear. They heard the family's concerns and decided to do something about it. They issued an alert saying they didn't necessarily believe Jill and Lydia were in danger, but they wanted to find them and get in touch so they could ease the family's concerns. And by the way, before I forget, going back to that surveillance video, another funny thing, and I guess this shows the divide between Southern Maine and the part of Maine where I live, which is Central Maine and the north of here, is on that locating the lost, and I'm not sure where Travis and Jeff are located, but Samford is in Maine's most southwest corner. And the three, Ron Sidebotham and Travis and Jeff, were talking about how nowadays there's cameras everywhere. So something is going to pick them up. I can assure you where I live, just a little north of Augusta, and certainly in Franklin and Oxford counties, there are not cameras everywhere. One of them said, yeah, like there's street cameras and stuff. I mean, it's not like Ray Lester, who we talked about earlier, driving down 95 and getting his license plate picked up, unless they're surveillance cameras on people's houses. There are no surveillance cameras in the town I live in. There are no street cameras. I don't know of a town, and I'm not saying there aren't any, but I don't know of a town in Franklin or northwestern Oxford County that would have street cameras. I don't know. They can't even pay to fix a pothole. Does Portland have street cameras? It may may have. I mean, a lot of the businesses have them. So a lot of times they use businesses. I mean, places like that. And those three guys all seem pretty certain that there's cameras everywhere. I can tell you, maybe there are in the more populated parts of Maine, but in the part of Maine I live in, which is much more populated, where Jill and oh, Hanson, yeah. and there are not cameras. There are cameras in Walmart, and that campground had cameras, especially property, you know, somebody's camp or something where they're not there all the time. You know, they may have a surveillance camera. I'm sure you could drive down Main Street in Rangeley or Farmington and not be picked up by a camera. Well, maybe yeah. Farmington because the University of Maine at Farmington's right there. Yeah. They may have cameras. But what I'm saying is I'm belaboring it, obviously. And I think you could move around this part of Maine well, as we pretty said many easily. times. It's all woods. Yeah, you can move around. And even in the towns, you can move around pretty easily without being picked up by a camera. Let's face it, the only place these two were picked up was at Walmart and that camp store. After the Samford police issued the alert, it blew up 
more or less on social media, at least main Facebook social media. The press, of course, has been slower to jump on it. Early news, as I said, was driven by social media, particularly family and friends sharing it on Facebook, with the local press finally giving it some attention in mid-July when People Magazine and the Daily Mail also got interested. I can only speculate the understaffed local media just can't cover every story. And also, I fully believe they make assumptions and have little imagination about this stuff. Mm. And I speak from experience as a main journalist (laughs) when I say that. That said, the Press Herald has done some fairly thorough stories on this recently, more recently, and I will have those linked on our website. The Sanford Police since has enlisted the help of the main warden service, which used fixed wing aircraft to see if it could spot the last car the two were seen in, a silver 2005 VW Jetta with a black rear bumper, main license plate 1563VJ. With the missing poster and stuff, there's a picture of the car, but it's not the exact car. It's the 2005 Jetta, so that's silver. The one they were driving has a black rear bumper and may not be as in good shape as the photo, my <laughs> guess is. None of Jill's bank cards have been used, and neither cell phone has been active since June 29th, mm. uh, almost a month now. Neither of them have passports. But as we all know, three quarters of Maine borders Canada, and you don't need a passport to slip through the woods and across the border. That said, as far as I know, neither of them speak French, which is the prominent language in the parts of Canada bordering that part of Maine. And if you think anyone there will speak English for your convenience, you're sorely mistaken. The Daily Mail, God love them, wrote, and if I could do a British accent, I would. But I can't, so I won't. But I'll picture like a Cockney type accent for the Daily Mail. Quote, in the farther northern points of Maine, towns become territories, and territories is in quotes, and it's very, quote, woodland country, unquote, (laughs) with very little people traversing the area. Although he doesn't believe Nick plans on taking them out of the country as neither have passports, he, and they're talking about Ron. He did admit there was a lot of, quote, woodland, unquote, areas up there that could potentially lead to a secret crossing, unquote. Ooh. That almost reads to me like something that went through Google Translate. I, don't know. <laughs> I, know. I know. And so, but I'm pretty familiar with that area. So I'll describe it in American English. It's incredibly mountainous and the towns are very small and scattered. The term territories refers to the unorganized territory, where towns are basically too small to efficiently have their own government, so they're part of the unorganized territory, which is overseen by the Maine State Bureau of Land Management. Up until the early 70s, it was called Maine's Wildlands, but they officially changed it to the the woodland area. (laughs) I know. I guess they don't have a lot of woods in England so they don't have words for it. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it's funny when Liz and I were over there in 1995, we were going somewhere in a train and I said, you know, I just realized why all the houses and stuff are different. So little is made out of wood. And she goes, well, the island was pretty much deforested by the whatever century. So then later I was telling my friend Leo after I got back from this trip about that. And before I got to what Liz said, he said, well, you know, that island was deforested. <laughs> like he said the same thing Liz did. But anyway, <laughs> so, but there are actually towns up there. They don't all become 
territories, Farmington, the county seat of Franklin County, is the biggest with a population of about 8,000. Keep in mind, the average municipal population in Maine is about 2,400. So Farmington is not necessarily a small town. Most of the towns in Franklin County have a few hundred people to low thousands. Rangeley has about a thousand, but is a tourist destination. So doubles in the summer and has a few more during the ski season. Rumford in Oxford County is a mill town across the Androscoggin River from Mexico, Mexico, where Jill, Nick Hansen, and Lydia were seen at the Walmart. Rumford has a population of about 5,600. These may seem like small towns to the rest of the world, but they're pretty standard for most of Maine. That said, there is a lot of thick, deep woods, unpopulated areas, and dangerous terrain. What's considered the most dangerous and difficult stretch of the Appalachian Trail, for instance, passes right through the area where the campground was that they, the two had stopped at. Ron Sidebotham says that Nick Hansen isn't much of a camper or outdoorsman, and Jill is a neat freak who would never want to camp for an extended time. So if Nick really did tell somebody they were going on a summer-long camping trip or whatever, he was full of it. Or maybe that's what he intended, but as we talked about in our Katahdin episode, people may intend to go on a long trip, but a couple nights in the woods will disabuse you of that fantasy. Jill's two sisters, Rita and Heather, 34 and 31, have been searching northwestern Maine for their sister, and a week or two ago extended their search across the border into New Hampshire's White Mountains. Hmm. The Sanford Police Department, like I said, jumped on the case right when Jill's family went to them. The police department first posted on its Facebook page about it on July 3rd, then again July 8th, both times saying they are seeking Jill, Lydia, and Hansen. The July 8th update said that they would like to find the trio to, quote, check their well-being and have no indication the family is in danger. Samford Police Lieutenant Matt Gagney said that the family's concerns, though, prompted the department's quick response. Ron Sidebotham told the Daily Mail and other outlets that he thinks the Samford PD is underplaying it so that they don't scare Nick Hansen further into hiding or doing something else. Apparently, they don't want Nick to think he's in trouble. That's Ron's assessment. Yeah, that makes sense. Ron has nothing but praise for the police and how they've been handling this. And I will say the police, like Ron Sidebotham, I have interviewed apparently anyone who who has asked in our open, have posted the surveillance photos on their Facebook page and all sorts of other stuff. Even though the police don't say that they fear the trio are in danger, the family on both sides, both Jill's family and Nick Hansen's family, was immediately concerned about danger and has become increasingly so as the weeks have passed. We are all very, very concerned right now. Brianna Severance, who is married to Braden's father, posted on Facebook July 3rd. She wouldn't take off like this and stay radio silent for so long. Severance posted that if nothing else, Jill would not be out of touch with her son, particularly since he stays with her on the weekends and that was always a priority for her. Severance, as well as Jill's sister Rita, both said on Facebook that day that Hansen, quote, isn't a stable person, unquote, that something his family also has told several news outlets. Brianna Severance cautioned anyone who sees the trio to be cautious of Hansen. Quote, he, he is not okay and has been violent before, especially when he thought someone was taking Jill away, unquote. And that's when I first heard of it. July 4th weekend, someone on yeah. Facebook shared the post and I first saw it and it had the picture 
that we'll have of Jill sitting in a chair with Lydia in her lap, a very sweet picture. Both Ron Sidebotham and Corey Alexander say Jill is scared of Nick Hansen. Ron told the Daily Mail that Nick is possessive and, quote, wouldn't let her out of his sight, unquote, when he and Jill were dating. Nick accused Jill of cheating on him Uh. and used to go through her phone, as I said, and as I said, even broke it once in a fit of assholishness. And Mm. I want to make a point that I had intended to make with our Nicole Mokimi episode last week about these cheating accusations these guys make. Uh. I think a lot of times when guys who are like this accuse the woman of cheating, I don't think they necessarily believe the woman's cheating. I think it's an excuse to control and terrorize her, a way to justify their own violent and controlling behavior. Someday, maybe we can get Laura Richards on to discuss that, too. Yes. But I think more it's more of a ploy to just exercise control, make the woman feel bad and have something to accuse her of and justify their own behavior. Ron is worried now that Nick may have destroyed Jill's phone again, and that's why they can't get in touch with her. Though, honestly, there isn't great cell service up in the mountains, and it's just as hard to get in touch with a phone with a dead battery as it is to get in touch with one that's been destroyed. I wondered if Nick was either the one who was answering Corey as Jill when her phone was still working, or if he was exercising such control and had her so scared that that's why her answers were so short yeah he probably was right there watching her right jill's oldest sister rita 34 recently changed their shared netflix id to someone only her and jill would know in hopes that jill would log in to give them a sign that she is alive and that was from the daily mail story i'm not exactly sure how that all would work and ron said jill often plays shows on netflix for lydia And he, too, hoped Jill would notice the message. The private Facebook group, Missing Lydia, etc., says that on both July 6th and 8th, the Netflix account was accessed. Mm. I'm not sure if this was before or after Rita changed the name. I'm not clear. Who knows? Who knew that? Rita must have seen it being accessed. Um, This just happened to me this weekend because I was somewhere where I used my Netflix account on the TV. It will email you and text you. Someone is logging into your Netflix. From Okay, right. I've seen that. That's right. Okay. Ron, like most normal people, said he didn't expect anything like this to happen. Yeah, looking back, he wonders if Hanson had been planning it and Ron should have been more aware of the signs. For instance, the visits to see Lydia earlier in June at, at the side Batham's house, when Nick was uncharacteristically polite and respectful, was that a way to take the family off guard and get them used to showing up at the house? Before that, Hanson hadn't been respectful or polite at all with the side Bothams. That first protection from abuse order in November 2019 came after Hansen accidentally elbowed Jill in the face while she was sleeping. She woke him up and told him what had happened and asked him to watch out in the future. Mm. Then, fully awake, he hauled off and punched her in the face. Nice guy. Ron recounted another incident, apparently before the drywall hammer attack, when Lydia was crying in the bedroom. Jill got up to go check on her, but Nick told her she couldn't and blocked her from going in the room to see her baby. And if this was a year and a half ago, it meant Lydia was still a little baby. Ron tried to intervene and Hanson lunged at him. So Ron put him in a headlock. 
Ron said Hansen was drunk at the time. Then there's Nick's Facebook. I didn't go on it, but I didn't have to. The Daily Mail story has posted some outtakes of seemingly angry personal messages Hansen posted in the weeks before the trio disappeared that given his personality should be red flags for anyone involved with him. Two weeks before he took Jill and Lydia away, Hansen shared a Rachel Byram poem. And I just want to note too, I didn't go on Nick Hansen's Facebook, but his profile picture is a picture of him holding Lydia. Uh-huh. Okay, this is a poem by Rachel Byram that Nick posted on June 16th at 9.24 p.m. I'm done playing your game. Did Ooh. you ever even care? Because you act like I was never there. I'm not just some game you can pick up and throw it away. The next day, because you think it will make you feel perfectly sound because you got bored, but then you pick it up off the ground. No, I've had enough. I'm done playing your game. You really missed out. You should be ashamed. I could have been everything you wanted because you were everything I ever wanted, but you made your choice. Your mind may be thinking one thing, but your actions are the only thing that's speaking because I can't look into your brain and see all those words that you don't have the guts to say. Maybe one day you'll finally realize that my parents weren't the thing standing in our way. It was you. A later on June 16th, he posted one of those Facebook posts where you have like the color background and the big letters that said, if you want me in your life, figure out a way to put me there. I'm done trying, unquote. Uh-huh. Ron said Jill had a stash of about $200, which can go far, but not that far in the woods of Maine. It's not clear if Hansen had any money. Ron speculates that maybe he did since he had no expenses since he was couch surfing. And had been working up until mid-June. Although booze costs money. That's true, and drugs. On July 1st, the monthly social security check Jill got for Lydia arrived at the Hansons' house. And it's still sitting there unopened. Lieutenant Matt Gagney, and I know people may be cringing at me saying Gagney. And thinking it should be Gagné. But in Maine, we pronounce it Gagney. Of the Sanford Police Department has told numerous news outlets that the video footage doesn't give investigators enough evidence to know if Jill and Lydia are in danger. He told the Press-Herald that police would need more to support a warrant for cell phone records, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. Quote, we don't have a criminal charge that we can chase after with this incident. We don't have any information that leads us to believe that she was taken against her will or kidnapped. We don't have any information that she is being held against her will. That's not to say that didn't happen, but we just don't know. Gagney said, for instance, in the Walmart video, they were buying food items and there did not appear to be anything nefarious or criminal. However, we cannot verify their state without seeing them. I think he means in person. Yeah, that makes sense. As we all know, people like us can speculate, but what police have the power to do is something totally different. I think when people hear that police say there's no indication of foul play, people think what the police are saying is everything's fine. When what the police are really saying is there's nothing legally that they can point to or to say they think that something happened. But I think cops calling out red flags more often would go a long way toward people understanding this stuff and maybe even slowing it or stopping it before it happens. I know cops want to play things carefully, but they certainly say incendiary things about other things. I don't know why they can't say, yes, we don't have any indication that something bad has happened or they're in danger, but Nicholas Hansen's 
behavior in the past is a red flag to domestic violence abuse, and that has us very concerned about the safety of Jill Sidebotham. The only reason I can see that they would not do that is because of what you said before, that they're worried that they're going to scare him. Right. Set him off or scare him farther into the woods or something. There's also, of course, a faction online supporting Nick Hansen and saying people- Right. They're saying people are judging him too quickly. I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe he hasn't done anything to them. But Jill obviously wasn't planning on taking off, Not certainly not for a month now. And she'd be home by now. She should have been home that weekend. Her son was staying and it was the 4th of July. So if nothing else, at the very least, she's in an uncomfortable situation for herself that she doesn't want to be in. And dismissing red flags like the one he's shown are why women and children keep dying at the hands of controlling men. I'm not sure how often we need to say that before people get it. Even Hanson's sisters, though with empathy for his rough life and troubles, are concerned. As a child, Hanson donated bone marrow when one of his sisters had cancer. He dreamed as a young man of being a chef. I hope that we can mend our relationship, Kelly Hanson said. It's never going to be the same There's been a lot of hurt in our lives, and we're not the same people, but I would love to have my brother back, the brother that was clean and sober, the brother that would give his shirt off his back for his best friend. I understand her pain, but sweet little boys with dreams can grow into controlling and abusive men, and we shouldn't give them a pass because they've had it tough. I also want to say that there are a lot of rumors, almost all of them negative ones, about Jill and her family. When I was watching the Facebook video of Locating the Loss, I was annoyed but not surprised at the amount of people asking questions who knew all these rumors and were asking about them, but were really ignorant of the basic facts that had been reported in the newspapers. This is going to stun you, Becky, but I'll be the first (laughs) to say that journalism isn't what it used to be. Wow. But you can still rely on what little information there is to be reliable, for the most part. Yeah. I'm not sure why people will believe something someone says on the internet just because someone said it. I joined the Missing Lydia, etc. Facebook page for updated information, but I hate reading the comments, and so I don't. Yeah. Although I read a few and got <laughs> very annoyed. It's not just because, as you all know, other people's opinions annoy me, but also because of the back and forth by people who are ignorant of facts. It's not that all the people on there are ignorant. And the page's administrators are doing a good job of posting info and updating it, but random people saying stuff, outlandish stuff, or arguing about things that aren't even true doesn't move the story forward. One that got some traction, I'll repeat since it doesn't attack the Sidebotham family, is that the Quincy Mass Police released surveillance stills, and that's not a rumor. This actually happened last week, showing a robber wearing a hoodie with a gun robbing, I'm not sure what it is, either a convenience store or a bank, but what little you could see of his face, he did look kind of like Nick Hansen. And so there's an internet rumor, all the web sleuths going around saying, I bet this is Nick Hansen and stuff. On the podcast, Travis and Jeff and Rod Sidebotham speculated that since they might be running out of money, robbery may not be that unlikely. And it's a thought. For those of you unaware, Quincy is a city a little south of Boston, in a couple hours from Southern Maine, in a few hours from where Jill, Lydia, and Hanson were last seen. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they went to New Hampshire and shot down 93 and boom, you're in Quincy. I mean, not that fast, but 
The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children on July 18th posted a missing poster featuring Lydia. Oh, Lydia. I've read some comments that there's an Amber Alert, but I looked it up and couldn't find one. Lydia does not meet the no. criteria for an Amber Alert because she's with her parents. It would come up on our phones, too. Yes, it would. Corey Alexander has been sending Jill messages and calling her phone multiple times a day, even though it's off or disabled, and he doesn't get any response. He said she's always been honest with him about Hanson, telling him when she was taking Lydia to supervise visits. He says she would have been honest about the camping trip if she could have. I know Jill, he told the Press Herald. I know her and I know that we have a bond. I know she loves me. I know she would not just get up and run away. If she didn't want to take this road with me, she would have told me. She would have told me it's over. She wouldn't just run away, especially from her son. Never Mm. her son and never her family. Exactly. Ron Sidebotham says that every day they don't find their bodies is a good day. Still... Mm. He's realistic. Ron has said in various interviews that Nick Hansen is not a smart guy. The weeks before he took Jill and Lydia away, now look to Ron like Hansen was trying to plan something. Quote, it sounds like something he was planning, trying to put together. I actually do believe that she is being held against her will, unquote. Still, his lack of smarts may also mean a real lack of follow through, which may be scarier than if there was a plan that followed through. Or not, you never know. Ron Sidebotham, his wife, Cotty, Jill's sisters, Corey Alexander, Brayden, and all the people who love Jill and Lydia are now in that horrific limbo that families of missing people find themselves in, not knowing and trying everything they can to find out what happened. Cotty's health has suffered, and she's lost a lot of weight. Ron Aww. is giving interviews to anyone who asks and is gracious and helpful, but it's obvious from seeing him on the Locating the Lost video that he's just barely keeping it together. He is sure something awful has happened to his youngest daughter and his granddaughter. He doesn't know if Nick would kill Jill or Lydia, but he told the Daily Mail he didn't know what Nick would do if he were backed into a corner. Quote, worst case scenario is Bodies can be hidden up there and never found again. Mm-hmm. There are just so many places that people can hide and never be seen, unquote. And one last thing, Samford police ask that anyone who sees the three call their local police department for a faster response than what would happen if you tried calling Samford, unless you see them in Samford. For instance, if you live in like Gorham, New Hampshire and see them, call the Gorham, New Hampshire Police Department. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children advises anyone who sees them or knows anything about the case to call 911 or the center at 1-800-843-5678. And I will put that poster and a link to the Samford Facebook page on our website. Lydia is three feet tall and weighs 30 pounds. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. Jill Sidebotham is five foot three with brown hair and blue eyes. She has a large tattoo on her upper thigh and multiple face piercings. Hansen is five foot ten and weighs 135 pounds. Mm. He has brown hair and brown eyes. He had a beard last shown. And I'll put those surveillance stills and everything on our website too. Okay. And so that right now is where that story stands. People may say, oh, it sounds like she went with him willingly. You don't know what happened. First of all, as I said, it's not clear if Jill's mom was there for the entire discussion. It's not clear what persuasion Nick used. It's I wonder the, if he had a weapon or something. Uh, you, you wonder. It was unlike Jill not to tell Corey 
who she has a very strong and loving relationship with. It's not like she would go off with Nick in the first place, but it wouldn't be like her to not tell him where she was or her family, her sisters. I think a lot of people discount how much sisters communicate and how unlikely it is that Jill would go off willingly with Nick Hansen and not say word one to her sisters. This man who she had two protection from abuse orders against, this man who she was scared of, like we talked about with Nicole Mokime, like we talked about with Brittany Barron, it's easy to sit in front of your computer or whatever and criticize the woman's behavior. She was in her own house. Why would she get in a car with this guy and go away? But you don't know what happened there's so much we don't know but she obviously didn't have plans to the fact that she didn't tell anybody the fact that her communication with people while she was gone was so limited makes you wonder and there was speculation like you know how people on the internet are in one of those surveillance pictures apparently i didn't really see it but people were saying it looked like he had a gun but matt gagney the sanford cop said no if you see the actual video it's just some a shadow or one of lydia's legs or something And as we've talked about, too, with coercive control, the guy doesn't always need to be violent or have a weapon to get the woman to do what he wants. Well, they have a little baby with, well, not a baby, but they have a little child with them. I mean, that is an incentive to agree with him if you're worried about your child. Right. You know? And the only thing that I would say is reassuring, although it's not really that reassuring given where they've were seen and where they've been and everything is it's not as easy as you would think to kill a woman and a baby and make their bodies disappear although you could go deep into the woods well that's what i wonder and do it and nobody would be the wiser but you'd think that car would turn up somewhere but i do get tired of I know there are web sleuths out there that do a great job and are very professional and know what they're doing, but the just the wild speculation and ignorance that comes with these things. It's dangerous. Yes. I mean, and, it can and, mess things up. Right. And that private website, they did a freedom of information request from the Sanford police to get Nick's criminal record, and they posted it. Just the the stuff in Sanford, obviously. You'd have to go to every town to figure out where he had had stuff. But And, you know, somebody responded, why are you putting this stuff on here? How is this relevant? Blah, blah, blah. And it's that kind of thing that keeps men who abuse women from being held accountable. Because everything isn't just in this vacuum where him taking Lydia and Jill off has nothing to do with any of his previous behavior. I know. Give me a break. It all has to do with his previous behavior. And it's sad that he's had a rough life. It's sad that he's an alcoholic. It's sad he's estranged from his family and everything else. But he's an adult who's making choices. And while he has been held accountable for some of his behavior, I think men aren't held accountable enough for their behavior against women and children and women and I'm not blaming women, but this is just the way we are trained and raised, are reluctant. They don't want to get the guy in trouble. Like her father didn't know about the first restraining order until this all happened because Jill, he knew Jill didn't want to get Nick in trouble with her yeah. father and stuff. They give him a pass. <sighs> well, I think women... Have, I'm not blaming them. No, but they have empathy. And well, they two, see, um, yeah, like empathetic. his sisters too. They see the damaged 
man, they see the damaged, vulnerable man inside this violent, controlling asshole, which on one hand, you don't want to lose that empathy for people. But on the other hand, being empathetic and seeing the vulnerability and the damage does not mean that the guy's automatically going to be a nice guy. Obviously, he was feeling at the end of his rope and needed something that he could control. And he went to get Jill and his little daughter because his other two kids now, he was losing his parental rights, but he hadn't seen him for three years. I know addiction is a tough thing, but he couldn't pull up his big boy pants. There's a lot of people with substance abuse issues. And there's a lot of people that have have had rough lives, but they don't, they're not controlling assholes that abuse people. And society, as we've seen with everything around us, including the January 6th hearings and everything else, supports misogyny. Misogyny is okay. And therefore, if misogyny is okay, then using women as targets using women to take out your frustrations on and everything else are okay. But anyway, if there is more, I will have an update. I hope, I feel like the update. I feel like not, getting in my car and going up, driving I feel up like the update is not going to be, be a good, good one. No. Because the direction, I mean, literally the direction they were driving right. more and more in north. Right. They weren't going to more populated areas. Right. Especially if he's not, a, he doesn't have any camping equipment, but he wants to go camping. And also he shows up when her dad's not home. And right. the, the only one there is her mother who who's ill. And Well, when he attacked Corey with the, with the drywall hammer. Which it's funny that Daily Mail had drywall hammer in quotes too. Like <laughs> but um, some American thing. The, we don't uh, understand what it is. We don't have drywall here in England. Now, where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. He waited till Jill's dad had left for work that day mm-hmm. or he tried to break into the house and attack Corey. But anyway, so that's my story. So, hey, do you have an NNW recommendation? I do. <laughs> <laughs> My NNW is on on books, though. It's not on a show or podcast this time. I did mention this author (laughs) a couple times ago, my last NNW, I guess, because I have Audible, uh, an Audible subscription, an Audible premium. Is it premium? Whatever. The one that you get one free credit a month. And there are things that are included in your subscription, a lot of books and stuff. I didn't have any credits, but I wanted to listen to books because sometimes it's just easier. I listen to them a lot at work. This author, K.L. Slater, a lot of her books are free or not free, but included in my subscription on Audible. So I've been listening to them and I've become kind of a fan of hers. (laughs) Why do you laugh? Is she not somebody you'd be a fan of normally? Her books actually are not bad. Okay. I'll say she's a good writer. She's British. It seems like I mean, I have read bad. British people are better writers than Americans. Is that what you're going to say? I don't know. I've read some bad ones, but it seems like I've read more bad. Yeah, you, you, you know what my books. feeling is? I feel like the publishing industry in the UK is more open to things that aren't, you know, as Americans, I mean, we invent a lot and we do all sorts of stuff, but we are very, maybe it's just our capitalism, not like uh, narrowly focused. If one thing, like if, 
if a book with the word girl in the title yeah. is a bestseller, then all of a sudden 500 books have girl in the title. And I've said before, Kate Atkinson, Leah Moriarty, oh, yeah. Denise Mina, all these really good, they wouldn't get published in America. I know. So anyways, KL, I think it stands for Kimberly something. Yeah. Know. Her books are domestic thrillers. They're good. So I'm going to go through the list and I can talk more about it. So bad reenactments, obviously that is not applicable. Narrative cliches, I'm taking a half a point off. Ooh. Because they're domestic thrillers, there's always tropes. You know, somebody you think is a friend that's not. And like anytime you're reading a book that's this genre, I think, and especially because it's not, it's not a series, each book, and I've listened to probably six of them. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how many books she has. The woman is a machine. They're all freestanding, which means you don't know. It's right. not like any friend can be the bad yes. guy. Yeah. yeah. Anyone can be a bad guy. And even the protagonist might be a bad guy i don't know if it's fair to take off half a point but there's just if you read you're writing you can do whatever you want but if you read a lot of domestic thrillers you'll you'll recognize certain storytelling techniques now i'm now i'm gonna get all paranoid finishing up my book now that i have all these tropes that are gonna be narrative cliches well maybe if you do it'll be a bestseller because people love that shit that's true racial gender obtuseness i'm taking a point off Ooh. Because these take place in Nottingham, England, and it seems to me like pretty much every character is white. And I don't know what the racial breakdown is of that city. Probably it pretty white. It seems like it's a fairly large city. I don't know. England? It's a pretty racially diverse country. Well, that was the excuse for for, for Midsummer Murders to be all white. Well, well, that's the way England is. It's not, though. That doesn't have to be anyway. It's a book. You can put right. anybody of any ethnic background you want. And that's they right. all seem to be white. Were they written recently? Yep, they're all within the last five years. Lack of good visuals doesn't apply. Missing pieces, I'm not taking any points off, and I'm going to go more into this in storytelling too, but her plots are very well crafted, and when you're done with the book, I'm surprised by the ending, but not. it's not the type, like we've talked about before, with mysteries and stuff, because they are, even though they're thrillers, they are kind of something that you have to figure out some of the blurbs compare her to Leanne Moriarty and in a way she is similar and I'll talk about that more in storytelling so I'm not taking any points off I think she does a good job answering with a thriller you kind of have to have a twisty plot but the twist can't be predictable twist you know what I mean yeah but you they also have to make sense yeah it can't just be some weird thing out of the blue so um, I think she does a good job with that so I'm not taking any points inaccuracies and anachronisms no i don't like who came up with that that's hard to say and like the rural juror they're all contemporary so there isn't any of that oh no one would say that phrase then because she's written them all in recent years storytelling i'm taking a point off in all of her books they are seen in different point of views in different chapters so all of her books one character point of view one character is written in first person the i know you don't like this i'm taking a point off okay and the others even though they're in their point of view are written in third person and it's i don't understand that i don't understand why you would do it that way other authors do it that way too i mean it's not 
I, I know what would bother you. I explained in a recent episode why they do it that way. Okay. But I took a friggin' point off. I know, but you said you didn't know why. So I'm just no. saying why. Okay. That's your reason why. I'd like to know what the reason is because your reason, I'm sure the author's not going to say, gee, I was so lazy. They I may wonder- put it a different way. Like it's too hard. Okay. But <laughs> I know, but one chapter is first person and the others are, even though their point of view of other characters are third person. Make them all third person. That's what I'm saying. That's my whole point. I don't understand her reasoning for that. It doesn't bother me too much once I get into the book because the plot. Listen, it's my end. I'm listening to you. I'm not saying anything. Pl- I'm listening. I'm just shaking. Imagine- your head. No, I'm I'm listening to you, Ruefully. but imagining myself how I would not be able to read those books. That's all I know. Doing. I know. But anyways, <laughs> the the because her plots are very strong, even though I'm taking a point off for storytelling, I will say she's good at characterization. And she's good at point of view, even though I don't know the first person thing, whatever. And I think that the way she crafts her plots is very good. And because thrillers are plot, the plot's important. I want to see what happens enough that the first person thing doesn't bother me too much, but I can understand why it would bother some people. But anyway, so the point of freshness, I didn't take any points off. I like her books. I haven't read any that take place in that area of england not that it plays a huge role but it's just interesting and it's mostly women characters in the book is there one of my pet peeves about domestic thrillers is there any humor yeah there's some humor in it yeah they're not as good as leanne moriarty but they are not And I think that a lot of the humor or whatever you want to call it comes from someone that's good at writing dialogue and getting the characters to be... The book I'm listening to now isn't one of her better ones and it's more uh, a little more serious. But even the bad people kind of have a sense of humor. And to what I mean by that, in case readers can't read my... And readers, listeners can't read my mind, is a lot of those domestic suspense books, I just find very dour... Yeah, and and it's not like they have to be funny, ha ha, slapstick, but in normally in normal life, there's humor. Yeah, people humor. interacting, and, and like I said, I think that comes. I think if you're good at flushing people out and having good dialogue, there's yeah. going to be some humor in there because you can't have a bunch of exposition or people explaining right. things too much, and they don't do that in these books. Repetition, no, uh, I'm not taking any points off. Beating the drum, no. Some bad things happen in some of her books to people, and people are doing bad things, but it wasn't preachy or beating the drama or, right. or hitting me over the head with anything. So i uh, giving 7.5. And I would recommend her, especially if you have Audible and you're looking for something to listen to that's included in your, so her name's K.L. Slater, like James Slater, the actor, um, S-L-A-T-E-R, or Helen hey, James Slater. James Spader. Oh, that was Spader. Sorry. Christian Slater. He's, is he Christian Slater? And there's an actress, Helen Slater, but she hasn't been on anything for a long time. And I like the narrator. I think it's the same one. If it's not, all the narrators have been good in her oh, books. Good. Like I said, there are some narrative cliches, like people having an affair, you know, someone having an affair or something. I go right through them because I got to see how they end. I like being, like I said, like being surprised, but not 
I don't like being so surprised that it doesn't make sense. I, like I was telling you about, there was another book I read and I don't even remember the author that was also free that I just listened to that was a stupid, dumb ending that I saw coming a mile away. And I'm like, I hope this isn't what this is going to be because it's dumb. And it was uh, a dumb, stupid what, Was ending. that the one that had multiple first person points yes, of view and did. one of them was the killer no one of them was yes. somebody with a and she was the killer but she didn't know it because more she than had one personality associative oh, personality yeah. disorder yeah that's that's um... uh, and there were some good things it wasn't horrible writing but there was enough and the plot was just stupid it was just stupid it's like come on but when i finished it i was just like uh, did you pay for that or was it a no, free no it was yeah. free okay. i'm very choosy about the ones i yeah. i don't really pay for them you know you, you build up credits yeah and it's worth it if you listen to a lot i like podcasts too but sometimes i need something right i don't know when i listen to because i've started listening to audiobooks after years of resisting but I listen to nonfiction, so it's like a podcast. I have to concentrate differently for fiction. If the things I do while I'm listening to an audiobook are not things and when I when I'm engaged in fiction, I want to be able to just focus on that. I, I can't can. listen to anything, no matter what it is, unless I'm doing something that is not using the part of my brain that deals with words right so if i'm working on a design i can listen to whatever the reason i like the books is i listen to them when i go for walk if it's a book that's especially a really long one i look forward to it and it forces me to go for my walk yeah, so i can yeah. listen to it and if it's something like a podcast that's going to end in a half an hour it's it's right easier it's, for me to blow it off yeah so but i do love laura richard's podcast me too. she's my fave which is crime analyst She's our favorite. She is. We love Laura. I do love her. And she's my Facebook friend and she replied to me. Yeah. And asked you to give her a five star review. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, not- next time it'll be me. Yes, it will. And it'll be our last one before our hiatus. Oh yeah. I better make it a good one then. You better. I guess yeah. I better figure out what I'm going to do. I guess you better. Thank you everyone for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll Bye-bye. see you next time. Bye-bye. Sorry. Ah, ow. Hi. Hi. Habibi was on my lap and she she fell off and she couldn't hold on. Just stay in here, please. We sorry. Bye. Just a minute. Habibi. No bad girl. Bad girl. Oh, poor Habibi. She looks stunned and alarmed at your outburst. She's trying to rip up the paper. What paper? Ow. Ow. My knee. Sorry. I have a bad knee. (laughs) (laughs) Take one for the team. No, she can't. Okay, I'm putting her out the side. Yeah, you're going down. Ow. Ow. Baby. You go out in the hall now. Well, you're ripping up the paper. Give me this. I'm taking the paper away then. If you're going to be like that. It's either you or the paper. Bad girl, bad. What a bad kitty. Ow. Bad girl. Poor kitty. Go sit on the bed. She just wants you to love her. She just wanted to, she's ripping up the paper. So I got, took the paper away because she wouldn't go out in the hallway.
I'm gonna close my door while she's ah what sorry nothing's sorry despite all evidence to the contrary no cats were injured or killed in the making of this podcast